0: I, I lost track of the, the time. God bless you, everybody. Wonderful to see you. Um, just to reiterate what Richard said, next week, big week, um, no iConnect classes. We're having a combined worship service, services, uh, with folks of different age groups, patriotic theme. Later that day, the campus will be filled up with great stuff. And uh, you can begin coming out at 5 if you'd like. Uh, There will be all these inflatables uh, for the kids. And all will be open at about 5, about 4, not until 6, because those require supervision from the folks we're renting them from. So between 5 and 6. Lots of fun for the kids, all these crazy food trucks. Um, And then at 7 o'clock, we'll have baptism at the cross outside. We already have a number of candidates who've expressed an interest in baptism. And then at approximately 7.30, Denver and the Mile High Band will be playing. We had them last year. If you recall, we got rained out, and we had to move it all inside at the last moment, they're excellent uh, brass players and quite exhilarating music, which we hope you will enjoy. So that's at about seven thirty, and then about nine o'clock, uh, there'll be fireworks when it gets dark enough to do that, and, and uh, fire marshals and all those people permit us to do that. We'll set off the fireworks, and so it'll be a big full day and. Uh, We hope you're available, and feel free to invite guests. Of course, no charge for anything except the food trucks, and those are not cheap, so save up your pennies for uh, the food trucks, and they will be here for quite a while, so if you're not hungry at five, no, no problem. They'll be out here for almost the duration of the, not the whole evening, but almost the duration. All right, so that's next week. Today, we are beginning a new book. And Brother Chuck and I used to poll you to see what your interest is, and then we decided to be honest, we don't really pay attention, and <laughs> we just choose something. So we've done that again. We've chosen First Samuel because we've been in the New Testament for a while, a couple short New Testament letters, Philippians and Colossians, and decided now for variety's sake to take on a longer book in the Old Testament, so it's First Samuel. So we'll begin it today and go into the book somewhat. Uh, let me tell you to begin with, by way of background, um, there's first and second Samuel in our Bibles. That was not always the case. Uh, um, before the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, um, it was one book, Samuel. And then when it got translated, we call it the Septuagint translation, meaning 70 plus, because the first translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into another language, in this case Hebrew to Greek, that's the Septuagint. When that happened, um, first Samuel came to be divided into 1st and 2nd Samuel. I personally don't think it's a problem. Just as long as you know, they're one book, and... Uh, it's probably best read and studied all together, First and 2 Samuel. Uh, whether we do that and go through it all remains to be seen. We'll just see how things go, what your appetite for the book is, and whether you can handle all that Old Testament. So it's about history. It's about Israel's uh, history from the time of the period of judges in Israel. Judges were governors prior to kings in Israel. So this is history of Israel, ancient Israel, from the time of the judges, specifically the last two judges, um, Eli and Samuel, into the conclusion of the reign of the second king of Israel. So the last two judges and the first two kings. Here's a bit of a... Bible quiz. Who was the first king of Israel? Hey, way to go. And who's the second? Well, there you go. So first and second Samuel go from Samuel, Eli, last two judges, and then uh, Saul and David. Now, the book is called, as you know, Samuel in Hebrew, it's Shmuel, Shmuel, Uh, we had a we have a friend in Israel named uh, Shmuel. A shortened form is Shmuelik. Shmulik is like Sammy. My grandson, uh, is, his name is, is Sam, and I call him Shmuelik from time to time and get no response whatsoever. <laughs> so anyway, just uh, to let you know. So uh, you might think since the book is named Samuel, he is the author. But that is not true, except according to certain Jewish tradition. According to certain Jewish commentators, he is the author of the book. Uh, and though this isn't the biggest issue in the world, that can't be right. Because First Samuel records his demise, his death, about midway in the book. So the last time I checked... Once you're gone, you're gone. Your writing career has, is over. And so it's highly unlikely that he is the author, perhaps, of the first few chapters, but that's about it. Who then is the author of the book? We don't know. There are theories advanced, and there are many possible candidates, but we don't know. There's a long discussion on authorship of the book that we could have, but I don't think it's the best use of our time. For now, let me just uh, summarize the discussion by saying, though it's named after Samuel, he is likely not the author, and the author remains unknown. When was it written? Well, uh, probably around 900 B.C. Not exactly, but in that time frame, about 900 B.C. Um, How do we know that? Again, That involves a lengthy discussion, a good discussion if you're interested in that sort of thing. Uh, For study purposes, I uh, enjoyed reading uh, the discussion on the dating of the book. But once again, I don't think it's the the most relevant and best use of our class time to go into it. And also, I don't remember what I read. So... (laughs) (laughs) we we do know it's written about 900 BC which makes it about how old it's old okay good for all you non-math students yeah was that Richard said that that Richard Richard, yeah Yeah. oh so it wasn't Richard it was Tony it it was Richard okay Behold, how they love each other. Look, they rat each other out, our class leaders. Okay, so that's a little background uh, on the book. Let's dive right in. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now, there was a certain man. Uh, we don't know his name yet, but soon will. There was a certain man, but we do know where he lived. From Ramatayim Zophim. Do you have that in your Bible? Something like that? Ramatayim Zophim? Later on, we will find out it's a place called Ramah. In verse 19, we'll find out a shortened name for Ramatayim Zophim is Ramah. It means the two heights of the Zophim, um, a people group. And it's located. Uh, in an elevated area, hence the heights, probably about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. For whatever reason, God uh, saw fit to tell us where this man is from, so it has some importance. He was from this particular place. You can locate Ramah today in Israel, and it is today an Arab uh, village. Now... Um, I'm not going to get off as I usually do uh, because I feel disciplined today. So I won't get into my whole thing. But just if I could just make a little bit of a sidelight because then I'll be able to sleep at night. A little bit of a sidetrack here. For those who accuse Israel of being discriminatory and an apartheid state, there's surely some truth to it, but not much. And if you've gone to Israel, you will see this. You will see in Israel, which is geographically quite a small country, and even in terms of population, not that big. Eight, eight and a half million people, of which about two and a half million Israelis are Arab Israeli citizens. I'm not taking into account Palestinian residents of the land who don't put themselves under the umbrella of Israel, but rather the Palestinian authority. But aside from the Numbers of Palestinian Arab people who live in the land, there are Arab Israelis who have full rights and privileges. And one of the proofs of it, just what I said, this is now an Arab village about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. How do you know it's an Arab, uh, primarily Muslim village? Well, you just ride uh, by and you can see um, minarets, which is a tower, like a prayer tower, popular in Islam in the old days, One of the Islamic religious people designated would have the privilege of climbing up the tower and calling people to prayer. Five times a day, you would bow towards Mecca and pray. Now, modern days, there's a recording, a recorded call to prayer. In fact, that's a whole interesting thing in Israel because sometimes the Muslim religious leaders really turn up the volume and it's disturbing Uh, to many of the people in the land, so this is a bone of contention. But anyway, you can identify a village as being Jewish or Arab based on the presence of synagogues or minarets. And you say, what do you mean Arab or Jewish? Why don't they live together? But that's not... Um, forced segregation by the government that's simply a choice the likes of which you and I are prone to make it's just human nature generally speaking we're more comfortable with those who we consider to be our own so even in our country you have certain neighborhoods you can identify this is a black neighborhood this is a Hispanic neighborhood this is a Jewish neighborhood that's largely Polish this is Italian you know that kind of thing whether it's right or wrong, it's just reality. Now, if the government imposes segregation, that's a different thing. If people choose to live where they want to live, that's that's an entirely different deal. And in Israel, that's what happens. So this is an Arab village. Now, folks, if it's such an apartheid state, how do you even have an Arab village with full rights and privileges? Of the Muslim-dominated countries in the world, there are 50-plus only one Jewish state, Israel, one, dinky, 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 with maybe now 7 million Jews living in it. That's it. Of the 50-plus Muslim-dominated countries, could you please show me one where there can be a thriving Jewish neighborhood? Show me one. And so <laughs> to point the finger at Israel as, as being an apartheid state, this apartheid state just um, appointed two new Supreme Court justices, and both are Arab men. Could you show me one Muslim-dominated country where a Jew would have much of a chance of serving in the government, let alone the highest court in its land, the Supreme Court? Okay, I am getting off. But, <laughs> but this helps me. It keeps me from getting an ulcer, even though I'm giving it to you. I, I'm just... Uh, I'm just uh, I'm hoping you're not letting the news uh, persuade you of what's really going on. If you really want to know what's going on in the Middle East, go to the Middle East. Take a look for yourself and then come back and see what you think. But okay, so today Ramah is a primarily Arab village. And uh, it says uh, this man a uh, certain man, we don't know his name yet, is from the hill country of Ephraim. Hill country of Ephraim, what does that mean? Well, uh, Israel was in bondage in Egypt, as you know, 400 plus years. Cries out to the God of all grace. And by grace, he delivers Israel. They spend 40 years wandering around in the desert because they're disobedient, stiff necked people. Finally, they enter into the promised land. They Crossed the Jordan River and come into what it was called the land of Canaan because the Canaanites lived in it, and uh, God made tribal allotments to each of the twelve tribes, and we now know this fellow whose name we don't know just yet is from the tribal lived in the tribal allotment given to Ephraim, Ephraim. Okay, and now we find out his name. His name was Elkanah. See. Elkanah. Who is he? Well, he's the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. So God wants us to know the guy's name, where he's from, what his line of descent is at this point. That's what we know. And you wonder what's the relevance? Look, I don't know. All I know is all scripture is inspired by God. But now it gets juicy. Verse 2. And he had two wives. So things get really sticky now for obvious reasons. Now, first of all, how does he end up with two wives? Well, God's uh, formula for marriage is unchangeably given in Genesis. How do I say, why do I say it's unchangeable? Because God tied his model for marriage to creation order. When something is tied to creation order, it's not subject to societal changes. It's tied to creation. And way back then in Genesis, God said, for this cause, marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two, not three, two shall become one flesh. So God's model tied to creation order not subject to cultural adaptation or modification is one man irreversibly bound. See, I do know man and woman. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother cleave to his wife. By the way, the Hebrew terms are Ish and Isha. Ish and Isha. You know what that means? The pierced and the piercer. Piercer, male term. The pierced Female, male, female. That's how God, I don't know if you knew this. That's how God designed it. Look around, it's biology, folks. And so God's model for marriage, unchangeably so, one man irreversibly bound to one woman. And the two becoming one flesh. Why do we emphasize size two? I'll tell you something. <clears throat> Buckle up. Uh, the modification on marriage that I hope many of us here don't approve of today, is nothing. Perversion is just beginning. For instance, already in a place in South America, uh, three men have applied for a marriage license to each other. Three. It's called polyamorous. It's gonna hear the, you're going to hear this term. I'm telling you. Polyamorous. Polyamorous. Well, you know, if marriage is love, that's the argumentation for same-gender marriage. We love each other. Love is what constitutes marriage. Who are you to legislate? Who I am to love? Well, that sounds good. But based on definition, that definition, why do you, why, why do you have to restrict your love to one person? So it's already happening. And you might say, this is crazy. Three, why is it so crazy? It's the same argument. They say they love each other. I'm telling you what you're going to say. One, one woman in our country has already applied for a marriage license to, her, to marry herself. You think I'm crazy? It's picking up steam. It's self-love. You should love yourself. You know, it's self-esteem. It's the, uh, you know, it's in keeping with all that. Give me, she wants an official marriage license. She told her parents she's getting married. She's having an event. She's inviting people to her to her marriage. I mean, you know, she's going to, you know, hug herself. I mean, and you say, this is just crazy. No, 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 no. It's not. It's just the logical progression from what we have already legislated to be law in this land. If love defines legitimate marriage, who are you to say who's the object of my love? Why can't I love me? Why can't I love my car? I want to marry my Mustang or whatever. I mean, there's just no and. you love dogs? My dog is Millie. I love Millie. I get unconditional love. Maybe I'll just marry Millie. I mean... Who are you to say? Who are you to define? Law? My, but anyway, so, so, but, so here you see two wives. So I want to tell you something. That's never been God's plan and perfect will. Polygamy. Never. I just told you what God's plan was in Genesis. How do you get polygamy? Folks, it's hard for me to understand, but I got to tell you this. At a certain point in the history of ancient Israel, God allowed it. He had, He did. Never his perfect will, but he allowed it for a reason. Why? I, economic situation was different. I, I don't know. I'll tell you how I know he allowed it. In some cases, even legislated it. I'll tell you what I mean. Do you remember this thing called levirate marriage? L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. Here's the deal. Uh, you're married, and so is your brother. Your brother's wife dies, no children to, per- excuse me, excuse me, thank, thank you, the brother died. the brother dies, and, and uh, no children to perpetuate his name. Uh, the law of Moses said, you, the surviving brother, have to marry your brother's widow so as to produce children to honor him through her. But what if you already had a, ma- a wife? That makes you now have two wives, That's polygamy. Now, that's not a practice we see in the New Testament and even in later stages in Israel's history. But at a certain point, that's the way it was. And to have children in that day, to carry on the family name and inherit the family's estate was so hugely important. It was permitted for a man. Let's say a man's married to a woman, but she is barren and can't produce children. He was permitted to take on another wife in addition to her, so as to increase the probability of having children. In fact, that's the situation I think we're dealing with here in First Samuel. So I don't understand it. I don't get it. But uh, to the best of my ability, I think I just told you what the case is. It's not meant to be normative. Surely not normative for today because we see the New Testament model, which, re- which refers back to the Genesis foundation of marriage. But anyway, at this time, in Israel history, this guy had two wives. And we even know their names. The name of one was Hannah, or Hannah, which means... Does your Bible tell you, maybe on the side, what her name means, Hannah? Who say that? Well, it means grace, or favor. Beautiful name. If you're looking for baby names, that's not a bad one. Hannah, or Hannah, it means grace or favor. But the name of the other... Penina, Penina, that means pearl, pearl. I have no idea of the significance of the name, but that's what it means, pearl. Now, here's the deal. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. In the last class, someone asked a very good question. Which of the wives came first? Who did Elkanah marry first? At first, I said, I don't know. The text doesn't say. But during the um, intermission, I had a chance to think, I'll bet you Hannah was the first wife. Do you think so? Why, why do you think so? What do you think, Barry? Oh. Okay, that's, yeah. Ah. That's what I was thinking. Okay, good. So we're on the right track. Because a lady in the back in the last class said, Hannah was first. I said, how do you know that? She says, it says right here on the internet. <laughs> so, but I think your answer is better. Thank you, Bear. Okay, so Panina had children, Hannah had no children. Look how quickly it says that. But the emotional significance is huge. In that day, a woman unable to bear children was considered to be one upon whom there was divine disfavor. She would walk through the streets, and people would conclude, what's wrong with you? What have you done wrong? Horrible, terrible thing. Frankly, even in our day, to some extent, a woman could be made to feel this way. In this day, even much worse. Now, that's not the whole picture of biblical barrenness. It is true that sovereign God closes or opens a womb, ultimately. But in that day, sometimes a womb remained closed for different reasons other than divine disfavor. In some cases, there are biblical illustrations. The timing from God's point of view wasn't right. And you'll actually see this with Hannah here. It wasn't God saying no forever. He was saying not now. Why? I don't know. God's time reckoning is not ours. But that's one reason why this happens sometimes. Second reason is to provide, if a couple so chooses, an opportunity for adoption. Sometimes, so that uh, children who otherwise would not have maybe the benefit of a stable, wonderful Christian home could now have that opportunity. And then a third reason why sometimes in the Bible, and even today, God allows this. Now, this is easy for me to say as a guy. I hope I'm not being insensitive, uh, but I think it's true. It's because sometimes God wants to birth something of even greater value than a child in you, the woman. Um, I say don't want to be insensitive because I don't have the the emotional experience you may be having if you're that person. All I can say is our heart goes out to you. So I don't want to be insensitive and flippant about this, make it look so easy. But still, uh, I, I think it's true. A sovereign and good God is always up to something good, especially if you belong to him. And I don't understand, neither do you, eternity fully. I only know this life. I have a concept of eternity, but not the experience of it, really. In terms of eternity, and our God is an eternal being, no beginning nor any end, he has a better set of priorities than we do. And sometimes he might withhold one thing because he's interested in birthing something of greater value in terms of eternity. What is a lady in that situation called upon to do? The same thing we all are. We must trust that father knows best. Doesn't mean we have to put on a happy face and act like everything's fine. You'll see in a little while. We can pour out our heart. We can cry for sure, for sure. That doesn't mean lack of faith. That just means normal human emotion. But at the end of the cry, I hope you can take a deep breath and go, I'm so glad I know who to cry to. Yeah, I I yearn to have a child, but better to be a child (laughs) of the king. You see what I mean? So you'll see some of that here in this particular text. Now, verse 3, now this man would go up from his city yearly. So what's up with that? So he's living in Ramah. He's leaving it once a year to go to another place yet uh, undefined. And why is he doing this? Well, because the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 23, mandated it. Once a year, you would pick up from where you are and you would go to a special religious center. Why? Well, the next phrase tells us, to worship and to sacrifice. To who? To the Lord of hosts. So Elkanah went up with his family from Ramah to a religious center for two purposes, to worship and to offer sacrifice. To whom? The Lord of hosts. To my knowledge. Now, someone in the last class told me I was wrong about this and I believe this is the first occurrence of that phrase, Lord of hosts, in the Bible. And so this person said, no, Stuart, it occurs in Joshua. And I said, oops, I'm sorry. And then again, during the break, I realized, wait a second. In terms of chronology, 1 Samuel took place before Joshua. So I actually think I'm right. For a minute, I almost made the mistake of thinking I made a mistake. (laughs) That can't be true. So anyway, I can't wait to see this guy so I can say, "Hey, Buster." So anyway, I think it's the first I think it's the first occurrence of the phrase Lord of Hosts. What's it mean? It means God in his masterful sovereignty of the armies of heaven, the angelic armies of heaven, the stars. You know what why is the writer calling upon that attribute of God? Well, Hannah is overwhelmed by the power of barrenness, life's circumstances. And her own inability to do anything about it, you cannot conceive in your own strength. She's overwhelmed by the circumstance. And the writer is maybe reminding her and us, yeah, but even mightier than the most influential of circumstances is the Lord of hosts try to see past and through the circumstances to the one who is high and lifted up. The Almighty can help you overcome all, as you will see here when we get to it. Okay, so Elkanah would come to this place once a year to worship, sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. And what place is it? It says right there, in Shiloh. Has anyone here ever been to Shiloh? Richard has. That's right. Anybody else? Uh, I have been there. And Lord willing, Guillermo, in September, we'll go, we're going to go to this particular. We're going on kind of a service sightseeing trip. About 25 of us in September. Guillermo, who's from Argentina, is finally going to the promised land. No, he's been there many times. No? Okay, wise guy. Anyway, he, but Maria, his wife, this will be first time. Where, anyway, we're going to go, Lord willing, is September. Shiloh. Now, interestingly, few people go there. Why? Well, it's in the West Bank. You've heard of the West Bank? All it means is the West, West Bank of the Jordan River. But it's a power-packed term laden with such controversy today, isn't it? Disputed territory. Who's disputing it? Nobody who reads the Bible is disputing it. What, do you, what is there to Dispute. God gave the ancient land of Judea and Samaria to the Jews. End discussion. Let's press on. Let's go get some pizza. but Kosher pizza, of course, with gefilte fish. But, but, but it's, it's a disputed land today. And so, some, so very few tour groups go there, but we go all the time. It's magnificent. Why? When Joshua led the Israelites into the land, again, after 40 years of wilderness wandering, this was the religious center before Jerusalem. This is where God had them go. Remember in the wilderness, they had something called the tabernacle. It was a movable tent. And God said, I'll meet with you there. And he instructed how it was supposed to be made and fashioned and all the rest. They carried it all through the wilderness wanderings and they set it up here at Shiloh. In fact, in Shiloh, in the stone, you could see holes in the ground where they put the poles. Down to this very day, there they are, where they put the pole. Archaeologists have measured it, and it fits the size of the tabernacle exactly. So before the temple, permanent temple, was built by Solomon, first temple in Jerusalem, Shiloh was the place where the Israelites throughout the land would come up once a year for two purposes, worship in Sacrifice, And so uh, when we go there, uh, I asked my son Tim when he's with us to do a little devotional because he and his wife, have, uh, my daughter-in-law, have been unable to, to have children. And so they prayed to God and uh, he enabled them to uh, adopt uh, unbelievably beautiful uh, children. And they named the first Samuel. And when he goes to Shiloh, first time he cried, my son. Because uh, you'll see Samuel is going to be given Hannah here. And uh, things all began right there at Shiloh. So anyway, it's quite a spot. If you ever get to go, you should go there. So anyway... It's in Shiloh where this is taking place. And it says the two sons of Eli or Eli. That's the Hebrew pronunciation, Eli. But we'll call them Eli because we're in Texas here. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and... See, it says Phineas. It's Pindchas. Pindchas in Hebrew. But okay, we'll go with we Were priests to the Lord there. So they're Levitical priests. They're serving there at Shiloh at this religious center. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed. Look what he did. He would give portions of the meat offered in sacrifice. He would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. He meant well. He tried to Gift her out of her depression. It's a good, valid approach, but you know how it is. Folks, all the gifts in the world can't satisfy your hunger for what you really want. What do you really want? You and I should want the things that are in keeping with our essential nature. Our essential nature is not that we're physical or material beings. Did you know that? That is not our essential nature. Our essential nature is that we're body, soul, and spirit. The body is the material component of who we are, but that's not so special. Animals have material component, trees, rocks. Mm -hmm. What distinguishes us is our immaterial component, soul and spirit. What aspect of our nature is emphasized in our world? It's our physical or material component. And as a result, we're investing in those things which cannot really satisfy our essential nature. We're spiritual and soulish beings, not just physical. And the proof of this uh, is to examine the lifestyles of the rich and famous whoever they may be. There's surely no shame in being rich and famous. But there are so many who have attained wealth and fame and popularity. All those things pertain to our material beings who are as empty as could be because they've not spent very much time in finding out how to satisfy their non-material beings. So we have marvelous examples like people like Madonna, for instance. Gifted? Oh, absolutely. Gifted. Lost? Come on. Why? Again, rich and famous, the material aspect of her reality is taken care of. I'm sure she has ample funds and surely lots of fame. I mean, you recognized her name. I just threw it out there. But it's an empty gal because her uh, legitimate spiritual needs have not been met. How about, how about Johnny Depp? Talk about an actor of, with excellence. This guy is so enveloped in darkness. It's getting worse and worse with this guy. But he's rich and famous. It goes on and on and on. I'm not criticizing, don't misunderstand. We have to be moved to prayer for all of the people I'm mentioning to you. For such work some of us our emphasis was on our spiritual you know how we're looking how we're feeling how we're appearing you know health and wealth and exercise and eat well oh these are good things these are good things but all that kind of stuff i mean you could be looking like mr america whatever the deal is but if you haven't found satisfaction for your non-material needs spirit and soul Mm. quite an empty person and so um this gal's husband meant well. I'll give you a double. I'll give you lots of meat. Ah, but it's not what she really needed. It's not what she was really looking for. And so as a result, look what happened. Her rival, however, and we already know her name, Penina, her rival would provoke her bitterly. Why? One purpose, to irritate her. Why? Why? it's because the Lord had closed her womb. Can you imagine having a rival whose sole purpose it would be just to irritate you? Think about who your number one rival may be. Think about it for a second. While I read to you a fictitious dialogue written by a man named Dale Ralph Davis, imagining maybe what happened between Pania and Hannah and... Panina's children. Panina starts the dialogue. Now do all, she's speaking to her children. Do all your children have your food? Dear me, there are so many of you. Hannah's hearing this. It's hard to keep track. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, dear? I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah, oh, Yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want children, Mommy? Oh, yes. She wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children? Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly, he does, but Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Why not, Mommy? Why? Because God won't let her. Does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you that I'm pregnant again? Do you think you'll ever be pregnant, Hannah? Yeah, and her rival would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. The next verse tells us year after year. Who's your rival? Satan, Lucifer, Satan. How do I know this? Well, he's called the accuser of the brethren. As Penina so viciously pointed her finger at Hannah, so too the evil one does the same with us. Have you not heard him say, perhaps of late, you call yourself a Christian? But you are spiritually barren. Look around. What fruit have you borne for him in comparison to those around you? Obviously, God loves them more. Others have his favor. You do not. He's not using you. Look at you. What is your purpose? You call yourself a Christian, but... Can you really be sure of it? If I was you, I would doubt that. Look at you. You sin, don't you? Still, from time to time. Doesn't that make you a sinner? You don't look saved at all. So the rival points his fingers, points his fingers, points his fingers. How often does he do it? Year after year, day after day he's the accuser of the brethren what do you do in a situation like that you start preaching sermons to Satan that's what you do you say father of lies I am flawed I am limited I still have an inclination to sin from time to time I am perhaps not as fruitful as I could or should be But there is now no condemnation for those who are in good shape. For those who are in Christ Jesus. I am flawed. I am limited. I still have a sin interest. I probably am not using my time as I ought to in terms of eternity. Uh, Yes, true. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not only that, nothing, not even my flaws, my spiritual barrenness and all the rest, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You start rehearsing truth. It wasn't virtue or merit or potential that got me into the fold and the absence of those things will not get me out. It was the grace of God that got me in. For he is the author and finisher of faith. You got to know truth. It's like a sword. And you use truth to dispel the lies. How often do you have to do that? As often as you are accused by your rival. Now, how do you know it's, the, it's, a, it's Satan? accusing you as opposed to God's spirit convicting you of sin. I give you just one a simple way to distinguish the two. When Satan goes on the attack, he doesn't usually attack something specific that you've done or not done. He attacks you. So Satan's attack are, is usually shame-based. You should be ashamed of not what you did. You should be ashamed of yourself. It's a brilliant attack because what could you do about that? You is who you is. you, You can't repent of being you. He got you back up against the wall. That's satanic accusation. But here's Holy Spirit conviction. He can stir us up when we've sinned so that we confess it, repent of it, experience God's forgiveness and press on. You're watching pornography on the computer. You're a Christian, and something is stirred up inside of you. Don't blame that on Satan and dismiss it. (laughs) That's God's Holy Spirit rebelling against unholy behavior. He messes you up, and what do you do? Turn off the stinking computer. The Holy Spirit will always put his finger on something we can do something about. Uh, Satan will always put his finger on our worthlessness. It's shame-based. So Satan is after our personhood, but the Holy Spirit is after our misbehavior. See the difference? So that's one way you can tell the difference between uh, satanic uh, accusation and Holy Spirit conviction. So uh, our rival is like Hannah's penina. She's always doing the sole purpose to irritate her. Why? An irritated Christian is uh, a non-productive Christian. An irritated Christian who doesn't feel right with God won't bear fruit for God. You'll shut down. You won't read the Bible. You won't come to church. You won't go on mission trips. You won't share your faith. You definitely won't share your faith. You'll say, oh, How dare I tell people about Jesus when I'm not even walking closely with Him? That's what you'll do. That's why your rival wants to irritate you. Boom, 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 boom. So that's what was happening, um, you know. O- over here, it seems to me, In the t- and she did this year after year. I think I'm a little hesitant um, t- to go into the next verse too quickly because it opens up a new thing, and I won't have enough, enough time uh, to do it. Look, if you have reason, legitimate reason to believe you're not right with God, it's not for me to make you feel good about that no uh, on the other hand I'm running into a lot of Christians who are doubting their salvation for the wrong reasons that's very bothersome to me I met with someone just the other day who was so troubled about this a very sincere person um, who said I, I'm doubting my salvation so I, I would never demean the concern I simply said "Well, for starters can you tell me what does God require in order for you to be saved Let's figure this out. And his answer was as good as any I could have provided. And he said, it's to acknowledge my sin and accept Jesus as my sin bearer. Ah, good answer. Um, Has there been a time when you've done that? I think so, said he. I said, ah, I see. Um, if you did that, do you think there, there would be some evidence of your salvation?" He said, what do you mean? I said, how could it be that the Savior, who is Almighty God, would come into your life, possess you, and there'd be no evidence of it? He said, you're right. I, I said, are you, do you have any evidence? He said, I don't know what you mean. I said, there's ample evidence. He said, what do you mean? I said, I never met an unsaved person in my, all my decades of ministry who was very concerned about whether they're saved or not. <laughs> That's not the stuff unsaved people are concerned about what are you talking about? They don't make an appointment to come in during the workday to see a pastor to say, I'm not sure I'm saved. What are you talking about? Uh, Secondly, how long you been coming to this place? Oh, years and years. Uh, How'd you get here? Well, my wife and I started years ago. She's deceased, but you still come here, right? I said, well, now coming to church doesn't prove you're saved. On the other hand, uh, this new interest you have in hanging out with other Christians is an evidence of salvation. It says so in First John. It's a love for the brethren. You think an unbeliever has that in, that affection for other Christians? Secondly, I said, can I ask you, what do you do with your money? What do you mean, said I? I said, well, this is a portion. Is a portion committed to the Lord? Oh, Absolutely. I learned the joy of giving a long time ago. I said, it's not that you buy your salvation, but but I've never run into an unsaved person who has an interest in investing in the kingdom work of Almighty God. I said, you have children and grandchildren, don't you? He said, yeah. I said, I saw your little granddaughter here. I did at Vacation Bible School. You brought her, did you not? Why did you bring her? What do you mean? I'm asking you, why did you bring her? I want her to hear about, believe in, and grow in the Lord. So I have never heard an unsaved person tell me that's their interest for their grandchild. And I said, how did she do in vacation? Oh, it was so great. She came home. She showed me this lesson. She memorized the verse of scripture. I said, does that give you joy? He said, it's worth more than all the money in the world. I said, I'm talking to a Christian here. These are evidences of regeneration. Why, therefore, are you laboring over whether you're saved or not? And I'll tell you why. His fellowship with the Lord has not been so hot of late. He's drifted. He hasn't been reading in the Bible nor praying for whatever reasons. So his relationship is intact, but the quality of his communion with the Lord needs work. And he is misdiagnosing the problem because he feels distant from God. He thinks God is distant from him. (laughs) But God didn't move. So instead, we just said, look, I got no magic for you, buddy. Get up tomorrow and start reading the Bible. Boom. And start praying, start renewing your conversation with almighty God. Then I asked him to tell me a little bit about his father. He said, what does that have to do with anything? I said, just humor it. I got nothing else to do. <laughs> his father was generally a good man, but his father was distant, never showed affection physically or in otherwise. This is the kind of... Youngster, Rufi, came home with a report card on which were four A's and one B. His father only saw the B. And so he transferred his perception of his biological father onto his heavenly father. And he saw his heavenly father to be grading him the same way, to be distant and uninterested. His was not a theological matter. It was an emotional matter. I've never run into a legitimately saved Christian. In all my years of ministry, maybe they're out there. I'm just telling you, I've never run into a legitimately saved Christian struggling with assurance of salvation who doesn't have a distant relationship with their biological father or stepdad. Never. I've never run into it. It's always that. And they're confusing theology with an unhappy emotional experience with their biological father. By the way, dads or granddads, Can you see how important a role we play? We can be a bridge to our kids and grandkids to embrace the Lord Jesus or not. We can make it easier for them to believe. We have to be like Christ to them. Anyway, I've never met. So anyway, that was this man's situation. So please don't misunderstand. I don't want to assure someone of salvation who isn't saved. I don't want to do that. (laughs) But I don't want Christians running around doubting the salvation they already have. That's what Penina was doing and that's what the evil one does. You see, he does it to irritate us because a Christian walking around crippled, thinking, I'm not really saved, what kind of fruit does that Christian bear? None. That person is almost lost for the cause of Christ. So, so therefore, please be careful when you hear sermons and stuff like that, that too quickly... Call into question whether you're saved or not. Please be careful. I want to tell you something. If you want to know you're saved, all you got to do is read five chapters, First John. That's all. It has the evidences of salvation. If you find any one of those things mentioned there to be true of you, you're saved. Why? Because not a one of those things is naturally occurring. They're all supernaturally occurring. That's all you got to do. And then you say... Get behind me, Satan. I'll not let anyone call into question my salvation again. The quality of my relationship with God has an ebb and flow, ups and downs. I got that, but the relationship never ends. Look, I got kids and grandkids, and I've been on the outs with various ones of my kids, they with me, from time to time. In fact, it wasn't too long ago, I had a kind of a big blowout with uh, my oldest son. We had a disagreement. We didn't talk to each other for a couple weeks. It's really a bad deal. Uh, please tell me at what point did he cease to be my son or I his father? The relationship is intact, but the quality of our communion was very much in jeopardy. Now, we got together. Why? Because we are father and son. We confessed our sin. We embraced each other, and, and uh, everything's fine. And that, now, now, if I can do that as an earthly father and he an earthly son, why don't we give heavenly father a little more credit? You tell me when he's going to let you go after he bought you with such an expensive price. You tell me. So don't let your rival, sometimes even under the guise of Christian clergymen, don't be so prone to letting someone put doubts in your mind. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. What do you do to be saved? You accept God's provision for your salvation. Jesus Christ His only begotten son. Having done that, you have fulfilled all his requirements. I'm not going to let somebody else talk me out of it. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's your rival (laughs) crippling you by telling you you're on the outs with God, you're barren, you're empty. Okay, we'll stop there for now. And Lord willing, not next week because we mentioned what's happening next week. Lord willing, the week after, we'll get deeper into the text. Let's see what it is that God really is up to in the life of this sorely afflicted, barren lady. You'll see. Lord Jesus, thank you for being A savior, not just from sin, though that surely is our number one problem, but also from aimlessness and randomness. There is no randomness for believers. Everything is purposed, planned, ordered by you. For what purpose? You tell us. You use all things for good, not for everyone. No, 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 no for those who love you and those who are called according to your purpose. And even the times in our life when we are empty, unproductive, Mm -hmm. seemingly unfruitful, still during those times you are up to something. And I pray we learn, in light of what you've done through Hannah, exactly what you're seeking to do in us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. Hope to see you next time.